to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... The 17th century. In the 1620s, a new Dutch outpost on Taiwan's southwest coast was swept up in a drama that threatened to destroy the whole project. The Dutch authorities found themselves up against a powerful, determined foreign enemy. And as friction grew, plots began to form. By the time tensions blew up in 1628, the Dutch colony's future and its governor's life would be in danger. Dutch colonial rule on Taiwan stretched for 38 years and came to include large areas of the island. But the string of events we're looking at this week might have ended it all before it had even really begun. Suetsugu Heizo Masanao was a powerful man. His family had risen with wealth from the trade that came into the Japanese port of Nagasaki. He was now the port city's magistrate after having made accusations that had seen his predecessor conveniently executed. He was in with Japan's shogunate, but also an independent force in his own right. He and Japanese merchants like him were invested in Taiwan. This was a place just outside of Chinese jurisdiction, where Chinese merchants could conveniently ignore their government's ban on trade with Japan. The Chinese silk, exchanged for Japanese silver here, was a hot item. So too were the skins of local Taiwanese deer. There was, in other words, money to be made here. On the same stretch of marshy coastline where much of this trade went down, Dutch merchants also set up shop in 1624. Suetsugu and Japanese merchants like him were well aware of the Dutch. After all, the Dutch East India Company, the ones who paid for this Taiwanese outpost, had a big interest in Japan, too. On Taiwan, Japanese and Dutch traders were destined to clash. Because unlike the Japanese, who were just here to trade, the Dutch East India Company was also concerned with ruling the place. The company wanted the Japanese merchants out. The promise of Japanese silver threatens to undercut Dutch trade. Just a year into the colony's existence, the collision course was set. In 1625, the first Dutch governor ordered some Japanese ships to pay a 10% duty on the goods they took on in Taiwan. When they refused to pay up, he seized a big part of their cargo. Then a letter from company headquarters arrived forbidding all future Japanese trade. Suetsugu and his fellow merchants were not amused. Their ships had received licenses to trade in Taiwan from the shogun. Who were these upstarts to claim sovereignty in a place where trade had been free before? The following year, Japanese ships were blocked from unloading their wares altogether. The crews were told they'd have to wait for new orders from company headquarters. None came. Soon, the Japanese crew said they wanted to leave for China to try their luck there despite the trading ban. Though worried at first about the Chinese reaction, the Dutch authorities eventually came around to the idea. But by then the winds had changed, and the crews were stuck in Taiwan for the winter. They were fed up. As spring came, and more disagreements with it, the Japanese crews took an unusual course of action. 
They had dealings with an indigenous village called Singkan. Right in the heart of the area, the Dutch claimed to rule. They went to the village and convinced a group of local men to board their ships for a secret mission to Japan. In the home of Suetugu, they were carefully coached on how to act and dressed to look their part. They were going to try and pass themselves off as ambassadors from Taiwan. Some sources say the group's leader, a man called Dika, was even meant to be presented as some kind of lord of Taiwan. Of course, there was no such thing. But officials didn't have to know that. An entourage like this might undermine Dutch claims of sovereignty on Taiwan. Suetugu is even supposed to have delivered a letter to a governor disguised as a letter from these supposed ambassadors. In it, there were complaints of Dutch restrictions on trade and mistreatment of Japanese merchants. Now the ambassadors were going to be marched across the country for an audience with the shogun himself. A number of writers say that men like Suetugu were hoping to see Japan replace the Dutch as Taiwan's sovereign. No matter what they were hoping, though, things didn't go to plan. The fake ambassadors got smallpox, some say the shogun might not have been at the reception, and in any case, whatever interest he may have had in Taiwan soon dried up. Amid the failed mission, trouble was brewing. Taiwan's incoming Dutch governor found out what had happened, and the idea of his subjects going around masquerading as ambassadors did not please him. Sixteen twenty-seven was the year that Peter Nouts got two jobs he probably shouldn't have been considered for. One, as we just mentioned, was governor of Taiwan. The other was as an envoy to Japan. The Japan trade was important to Dutch profits in Asia, and with the recent friction, someone would have to go smooth things over and see the trade keep coming. This mission was a disaster. His audience with the shogun was blocked, and his personal character, described as incompetent, aggressive, headstrong, inexperienced, and arrogant, so angered the shogun's officials that he probably ended up making things worse. But he'd found out about this embassy charade, and he managed to make it back to Taiwan before the fake ambassadors could. The decisions he made when they arrived would set off a real crisis. When the Japanese ships bringing them home showed up, Nauts had the ambassadors seized and put in irons. Meanwhile, the ships that brought them were held up as well. The crew's anger at their detention built. One of Suetsugu's captains, the same man who'd helped coordinate the ambassador's voyage, now took the lead in a new plan. In June 1628, the Japanese crew members paid a visit to Nauts, announcing their departure. When the governor told them no yet again, they sprung at him, tying him up and after a brisk fight, barricading themselves in with their hostage. Conditions for the governor's release included letting the fake ambassadors go and returning the shogun's gifts to them. There was also to be an exchange of hostages, an exchange that would see Nautz's son taken to Japan, where he would die in prison. Everything was done as the captors demanded. The potential damage to the Dutch East India Company was enormous. Suetsugu had all Dutch operations in Japan shut down, and all Dutch ships held. The shogunate's message was that if the Dutch wanted to resume their profit-making in Japan, they would need to abandon Taiwan altogether. 
This would allow men like Suetsuku to go back to trading there without interference. This wasn't something the Dutch side was prepared to do. But the embargo was a heavy blow, and without the Japan trade, Dutch Taiwan wasn't feasible. This problem was still festering in 1630 when news broke that Suetsugu had died. Seeing that the winds had shifted in their favor, the Dutch now decided to make a new overture. In 1632, a new prisoner was shipped to Japan. This time, the now ex governor Peter Nauts, whose two year tenure had ended in disgrace and recall. The surviving Dutch hostages and prisoners were released. Trade was allowed to resume, and the Dutch East India Company didn't have to give up Taiwan after all. Nauts, as the one blamed for the bulk of the debacle, would spend four years in captivity. Through the 1630s, more good news came. The shogunate had decreed that no Japanese were to leave the country at all. This left one of the fiercest competitors for trade in Taiwan out of the picture. A serious danger that had threatened early Dutch rule on Taiwan had suddenly lifted of its own accord. But as this incident shows, Dutch Taiwan could be vulnerable to its neighbors when they found themselves interested in this island. A few decades later, a force from another powerful neighbor, this time China, would be the thing that finally brought Dutch Taiwan to its end. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time.